were here last year at our um, carol services, you might remember there were some amazing videos as part of the service that had been done by our media team, and one of them featured these little, these little snapshots of some of the famous stories from Jesus' life, including the story of the woman caught in adultery. Don't you remember that? Um, and we're going to start today by reading this story as it appears in chapter 8 of John's Gospel. And as we read it, I'd just love to encourage you to consider what strikes you most about this story. Okay, so it says, At dawn, he, this is Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered round him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They had made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who had heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. It's an incredible story, isn't it? But before we get sort of into it today, um, just want to say, Depending on what version of the Bible you read, you might have noticed when you look at this passage a little note next to it saying something like this, saying the earliest manuscripts did not include this passage. I don't know whether you've ever noticed that and you've ever wondered what it's all about, whether it you know, potentially it sort of raises questions about the authenticity of this story. So I thought it'd just be worth a minute just explaining what I think that note is all about. And to me, basically, I'd say it highlights the fact that the Bible that we read today isn't a translation of just one ancient manuscript, but it's the result of comparing the many, many copies of the ancient manuscripts that we have. Documents that, when they look at them, actually reveal the incredible, extraordinary care that's been taken over the years to preserve the original text. Because there's only a very few small differences between all these different manuscripts, but this is one of them. It turns out in some of the oldest manuscripts of John's Gospel, this story isn't included. Or in some of them, it's placed at the end of the Gospel. And it suggests that, yes, indeed, it was probably um, a later edition. However, the story does have um, a good pedigree. Sorry, this little clicking thing. Are you hearing a lot of clicking? It's annoying me. Is it annoying you? A little bit. Let's see if I can do something to stop it from happening. Otherwise, we'll go to handheld. All right. See if that's better. So anyway... It suggests that the story probably was added a little bit later, but don't panic. This story does have a good pedigree. Um, It's referred to in other early Christians' writings. It looks like the story was around from the start, and it's affirmed by some of the important first Bible scholars, people like Jerome and Augustine. So all told, especially when this story is just so consistent with Jesus' character that we read elsewhere, Bible scholars conclude this is a genuine story from the life of Jesus, and the early church were indeed prompted and led by the Holy Spirit when they chose to include it. So um, for me, rather than raise questions about um, the accuracy of the Bible, this little note serves to me as a reminder of the diligence and the um, integrity and the transparency of those that have handed it down to us through the years. 
So that's the little practical lesson over about that. Um, let's come back to the story, and I want to come back to that question. What was it that struck you most about this story? And um, I'm good, let's do it. Let's turn to your neighbour just for 30 seconds and do that. Tell your neighbour what was the thing that struck you most about this story. Go. Okay, maybe 10 more seconds. We're going to be quick. 10 seconds. I love it. Well, obviously, obviously, there are loads of things that you could say about this story. The thing that struck me recently when I read it was just how humiliating it must have been for this woman. Um, I don't know what's the most you know, humiliating experience that you've ever had in your life. For me, I remember it vividly, and it was the day that I um, went to ask for Abby's dad's permission um, to propose to Abby, because I was so nervous that as I parked my car outside of his house, I crashed my car <laughs> into his car. It's terrible. Now, that was bad. That was bad, but it was nothing compared to what she experienced, was it? She was dragged in front of her community, publicly branded an adulteress. And I was trying to think, like, what would be the equivalent now? And the closest thing that I could imagine was, just imagine, you know, the thing in your life that perhaps you're most ashamed of. It might be something that you've... Um... <laughs> yeah, imagine the thing that you're most ashamed of. You're most, you know, maybe something that you've never told anybody about. And imagine being here and having it displayed on the screens. <laughs> I was at the mercy of those guys when I did this, wasn't I? They decided to put that untrue thing up there. <laughs> what did they taste like? Yeah, actually, I don't know. Ask my son. Anyway. <laughs> the thing that makes this story so amazing, though, was how Jesus responds. Rather than focus on protecting himself, he sees her. And he seeks to restore her dignity. He seeks to grant her justice and then give her a fresh start with new purpose in her life. It's the most amazing thing. And those are the things I want to look at today. Dignity, justice, and purpose. We're going to look at each of those. First, dignity. Now, when you look at this story on close inspection, it's evident that the villains of this story are the Pharisees and the tax collectors. Sorry, not the tax collectors, the um, law students. What are they called? The, the experts of the law. And it's clear they were using this poor woman as just a prop in their trap. As they question him in verse 5, they read, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So what's the trap they were setting? Well, basically, as I say, they didn't like Jesus. They were threatened. They were outraged by Jesus. They were trying to undermine him. And so they try and ask this question that they think is going to stump him, that's impossible to answer. Because, see, the ancient Jewish law did indeed prescribe the death penalty for adultery, serious crime. And so had Jesus suggested that they spare her, then he would have effectively been denying the law of Moses. But then on the other hand, if he had said, you should execute this woman, it would have been a very unpopular thing, most likely with the surrounding crowd. And certainly the Romans would not have been happy because they ruled over the Jewish people at the time and they forbid the Jewish courts from um, exercising the death penalty. And so they must have thought it's a pretty good trap. Either way, Jesus is going to be in trouble with somebody. But what they hadn't anticipated was that in humiliating this woman... 
stripping her of her dignity and her humanity in the way that they were, they aroused Jesus' compassion. They hadn't considered that when Jesus looked at her, he didn't see her as a trap to navigate, nor a sinner to be condemned, but as a human being, a daughter of God, made in God's image. And Jesus, of course, he saw that, yes, like all of us, she had gone astray. She'd made mistakes. That didn't forfeit her inherent, immeasurable dignity and worth. And so Jesus looked at her, and he saw that. And because that's the way that Jesus always looks at people. You know, think about the way that Jesus was with the, the lepers or the woman at the well or the tax collectors, even the criminal that hung at Jesus' side when he was crucified. He didn't label these people as sinners or as unclean or as traitors. He saw them as, as captives to be set free, as victims to be defended. And so he sought to restore their humanity and their dignity and he did it. It cost him his life ultimately to do that, but he did it. He did it for all of them and he does it for all of us. And so what that means is that we, as, as followers of Jesus, we're to seek to do the same to others. When we see people that society condemns or that society rejects, it's our job to recognise their dignity and their humanity and their worth in the same way that Jesus does. I think a really good example of this is... Um, Maggie, who's an absolute legend, who's part of the Soup Run team. And she was out um, stopping to talk to the rough sleepers and with some food for them and hot drinks. And she learned through those conversations that some of them were Christians. And so she decided to do the most beautiful thing. She decided to start taking out the Lord's Supper to them, crouching down beside these folks in Market Square or wherever it was, and sharing in the body and the blood of Jesus to remind them that they're human beings, but even more than that, that they are actually her brothers, her sisters, part of Jesus' body, and that Jesus died for them just as much as he died for her. I wonder who you might come into contact with this week who needs to be treated with that same dignity. You know, it might be a colleague at work that nobody likes, who's got a different worldview to yours, or it might be that difficult neighbour. It might be that annoying, self-centred relative Hopefully you aren't sat next to them right now. <laughs> Whoever it is that God is reminding you of, who is it? Where um, he's, he's, he's suggesting that, you know, despite their lifestyle, despite their behaviour, despite their convictions, despite what they've done, they're first and foremost a human being made in God's image. And so what can you do this week to acknowledge that? You know, it might be something as simple as like, just when you go to the shop and you get to the till actually taking out your headphones and having a conversation with the cashier. Or, you know, when you're on, when you're on, the, phone on, on, the, on, on the phone on hold for half an hour to a call centre and you finally get through to somebody, actually talking to them like a human being instead of the person that's made you wait all that time. Let's see people with the dignity that Jesus sees in them. The second thing that Jesus gives her in this story is justice. See, though the law that these Pharisees were brandishing was supposed to be all about justice... This scene reeked of injustice. I heard somebody say, um, you know, we call it the story of the woman caught in adultery, but it, could, it should really be called the story of the men caught in hypocrisy because, you know, they claimed that they were passionate about the law. They claimed that they were holding this woman to account to the letter of the law, but their animosity towards Jesus was blinding them to the spirit of the law. For a start, there's a distinct sort of whiff of sexism about this story because Actually, in the law, um, it would have actually held the man to account for the adultery as well as the woman. 
And, you know, it's not possible to catch just one person in the act of adultery, technically speaking. And so the obvious question was, where was the man in all of this? Why was he not being in hall in front of everybody? And, of course, Jesus was well aware of all of this. He was aware they were humiliating her for his agenda, for their agenda, sorry. And so, I love it, just when they think they have him cornered, just when they think they've got him, Jesus goes into what I would call judo Jesus mode, and he kind of turns their weapons on them to disarm them. He says, he says, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. It's just the best line ever, isn't it? And it turns out, trying to trap Jesus with his own law, it's like trying to trap lightning with metal gloves. You're going to get a shock. And that's what they get. Because in his answer, he challenges them. And notice that he doesn't, he doesn't fall into their trap. He doesn't try and fudge it. He doesn't imply that God doesn't really mind about this sin. He doesn't pretend that she hasn't sinned. In fact, he upholds the law. He says to them, you know, effectively, if you're going to take the letter of the law so seriously, then you'll know that the witnesses to a capital offence, says in the law, must initiate the execution by hurling the first stone. And it's quite likely that these experts of the law, because they knew it so well, they would have probably recognised that Jesus wasn't just challenging them, but he was subtly raising the stakes here. Because bearing false witness was also a very serious crime in the law that, that carried the same penalty. And so he challenges them. But do you notice he doesn't challenge them the way that they had challenged her? He doesn't haul them against their will in front of the crowd. He simply invites them to privately examine their own hearts. And of course, they don't have to dig very deep. They don't have to reflect very far before they're confronted with their own hypocrisy. And it says at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. And I suspect it's worth just pausing at this moment and holding this story up to our own hearts. Because, you know, whilst we probably don't go around accusing people quite as viciously as these Pharisees did, the truth is we're all prone to pointing the finger and judging people at times, aren't we? I remember um, not too long ago, about six months after it was um, installed, the toilet in our house started to overflow, despite my vigorous plunging efforts. And so somewhat irritated, I called the builder who had installed it to alert him of his poor workmanship. And um, predictably, he was quick to reach for excuses. He says, probably you flushed a load of wet wipes down the toilet. And I was like, I can assure you, we all know in this house that you're not supposed to flush wet wipes down the toilet. Thank you very much. And so he turns up and he undertakes the grisly task of cutting through the pipe outside our house and reaching in and retrieving unspeakable things. Until eventually, and you might be thinking, inevitably, out comes the biggest wad of compacted wet wipes that you've ever seen. And he didn't, he didn't have to say a word. Just the looking, he just looked at me, and I was humiliated, I was embarrassed, because he had literally and metaphorically cut through all of my wet wipes. <laughs> and uh, I apologised to him, and I offered to pay for his time, and he said, don't worry about it, because clearly the satisfaction of that moment was payment enough. <laughs> you see, it's so easy to stand, isn't it, at a distance and point the finger and judge people and be quick to do that. You don't have to get your hands dirty in the way that you do when you reach round your own U-bend. But in truth, <laughs> in different ways, in our thoughts and in our actions, we've all done stuff. We've all flushed stuff down there. And this story shows us that 
actually the only person who's truly without sin, the only person who's ever lived a life where they're qualified to act as judge. He doesn't overlook our sins, but he does choose to offer forgiveness. I don't know if you noticed, but there's a few parallels between this story and the events surrounding Jesus' death. When you think about it, a few of these images, there's the accusation of the Pharisees. There's the the public shaming that Jesus experienced. And there's the threat of brutal execution. And I think these parallels remind us that Jesus hadn't come to earth to condemn this woman. Then or ever, he'd come to save her. He'd come to carry her sin and her brokenness and her shame and her penalty upon himself. And the reason that he was able to say with complete conviction, neither do I condemn you, was because his death really did have the power to wash her sins away and remove her guilt completely. It's amazing. And it's the same for us. You know, we could all be flung at Jesus' feet, as she was. You know, um, years before this, the prophet Isaiah, I think he put it really well. He said, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The truth is, all the things that we have done wrong, past, present, future, all of it, whatever would have been on the screen for you, your most shameful act, Jesus faced a brutal public execution for that so that we, like the woman, can be forgiven and walk free. So this story reminds us that God, as John said a few chapters before, did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And with that freedom comes um, a new purpose for our lives. And that's the final point today, purpose. It is still clicking, isn't it? So, purpose, let's let's just ignore the clicking and carry on. Once again, imagine what it must have been like for this woman. Suddenly all of the noise and the shouting and the glaring and condemning eyes have gone and she's alone and it's silent and she's with Jesus. And he says, does anyone condemn you then? And she says, no one, sir then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Do you notice that it's only now, it's only now that she knows that this is a man that she can trust. It's only now that she knows that this man would even risk himself to protect her. And she trusts him. Does he gently but firmly challenge her? He says, you've got to leave that life behind. Once again, the way Jesus treats her is a picture of the way he treats us. The truth is, you know, we've all made mistakes. Like it says in Isaiah, we're all like sheep that have gone astray. We're all like sheep that have got stuck in a ditch. And and Jesus comes along and he comes into our life and he offers to save us. He offers to set us free. But as he does that, he says, now go and live free. Don't look back. Don't go back to that life of sin. Don't do this. Brilliant, isn't it? And it would be funnier, wouldn't it? It would be funnier if it wasn't true. It would be funnier if it wasn't true because the reality that we, is that we've all used the freedom that Jesus gives us at times to go straight back out there and jump headlong into a ditch. We've all tried to flush a few wet wipes down the toilet when we think Jesus isn't looking. And I think this is why perhaps, you know, we have this saying that we love, um, that we've loved through the years in the vineyard, come as you are, 
but don't stay as you are. I think that little message, come as you are, but don't stay as you are, it captures something of the essence of this passage. And this idea that Jesus, he holds these two things, grace and truth, together. There is acceptance, but there is also challenge. And we hold these things in tension because the truth is Jesus died for us just as we are. And therefore, as a church, we look to love and welcome people towards him just as they are. But Jesus' plan for us is that more than just that we would get set free, it's that we would go on and live free. Because the truth is the way of Jesus, it calls us out of the ditch and onto a higher path. It calls us onto a life where our priorities and our purposes are no longer centered around our own things and what we decide, but centered around God's will, centered around his idea of what's right. In other words, centered around his kingdom. And you know, as we've been focusing on this story, I suspect that for different ones of us, God will have been highlighting perhaps different areas of our life where, you know, he's calling us to change. He's calling us to stop falling back into the same ditch. For some of us, it might be that our hearts felt heavy when we were focusing on the Pharisees. And we realise, yes, there have been times when we've been too quick to judge. Perhaps there's been situations where, you know, your desire for, to be treated fairly, your desire for justice in an unfair situation has caused you to, to label somebody with an identity that's based on their weaknesses or on their worst actions or on their circumstances. But this story, you know, it reveals to us that often... The path to justice is not through casting stones, but first casting light on our own hearts and our own motives. And perhaps for some of us, there is a conviction and a reminder today that we're to see those people the way God sees them, to see the dignity and the humanity in them. For others, it might be that the thing that you identified was the woman. You know, you feel, you realise, I've messed up, I've made, I've got stuck in a ditch. And maybe you fear that when God looks at you, all he can see is your sin. If that's you, whether this is the first time you've ever heard this or the first time that it's got through in this moment, the truth is, no matter how stuck you are, no matter how ugly or shameful your actions were, they do not define your identity in God's eyes. You are treasured by him. He loves you. And he was willing to die. He was willing to lay down his life on a cross to set you free. And there's an opportunity today, if you'd like to, 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 to turn a corner, to reach out to him, a saviour, and entrust your life into his lordship. And we'll do that at the end of this service. You'll have the opportunity to do that today. For others of us, the thing that might be ringing in our ears as we leave are Jesus' words, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. You know, it might be that, you know, you're a follower of Jesus. You have been for years, perhaps. And you're a decent person, but there might be areas of your life where you just know you're not living the way God wants you to. It might be something that you've just been too ashamed to confront. It might be something that, you know, you've been trying to convince yourself that it's not that bad and that perhaps God's happy to let it slide. But as I'm speaking right now, the Holy Spirit is kind of convicting your heart. It might be something to do with money. It might be a pattern of spending that's destructive or out of control. Or it might be, you know, the way you use your mouth. It might be that you've been speaking about people that afterwards you feel bad about it, but you keep on doing it to be funny or popular. It might be something to do with, you know, like with this woman. It might be something to do with your sex life. Perhaps you have committed adultery. Whatever it is, whether it was from yesterday or years ago, today, 
is an opportunity to turn a corner. It's an opportunity to call on Jesus and ask him to set you free and to set out to leave that thing behind. And what this beautiful story shows us is that when we do that, it takes courage, but when we do that, when we come before Jesus with all of our failures exposed, we find ourselves before a judge who knows it all, who sees it all, and yet still loves us and still desires that we would have dignity, still desires that we'd have justice and a purpose in our lives, a king and a Lord who is both able and willing to remind us of and restore us to our true identity in his eyes, to forgive us, to save us from our sin and from ourselves and then call us on to live a life with new purpose. And the first step on that journey towards change, it starts as we examine our own hearts and choose to be honest with ourselves before God and indeed others. And this is where, you know, as we do these things, as we encounter these moments, it's a, church, it's a moment where we as a church want to be a place where it's safe to be real. And so whether it's, you know, whether there's something that you find, you need to have a conversation with your small group leader or somebody that you trust, or maybe you feel like today, I just want to go at the front and pray about that thing. It's the job of the church to be a place where it is come as you are, but let's not stay there. Let's challenge and support one another to not stay there. 